Great to see you today and to be uh, back with you. Uh, those of you that are a part of Church on Mill will know that uh, several of us have been away for a couple of weeks and we're uh, partnering up with some churches that we've learned a lot from in the past and we'll look forward to telling you more about that in the, the days and weeks ahead. Thank you, Dr. Haney, for presenting Esther to us last week and appreciate that. Today we're going to be finishing up this little book in the Bible called Esther. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, if you could look at Esther chapter 8 with me, that will be where we are today. And Lord willing, we will finish up as Hansley talked about and move on to a new topic, really a continuation in some ways next week. So Uh, There are times that sometimes messages are easy and they're just sort of handed to you on a platter. Um, Other times that a particular sermon or talk is uh, difficult. There's a lot to wade through and think about. This is definitely one of those this week as we try to wrap this book up. So uh, pray for me and for us as we try to learn from how the book ends today. Uh, So maybe just a few minutes to, to review and perhaps some of you are new today and haven't been with us through this book. At times, it's exceptionally difficult to understand what God's up to. Perhaps you're here today because a friend brought you. Uh, You came to be nice, not because you're really interested in Christianity. Maybe you just don't see the point. You don't have enough proof. For you, maybe the idea of God is sort of, odd. Maybe you think he exists, but not really involved in our daily lives. I, I frankly, I understand that. I get that. I find myself at times thinking those kinds of thoughts. There are times our experiences and the way we choose to look at things causes us to wonder if God is really involved in the stuff of everyday life. Or maybe you're here today and you're a longtime Christian but you used to be unshakably convinced of God's involvement and care in life. But through a series of crises or hardships, you've come to really wonder. You had a miscarriage, you failed the class needed to graduate, your fiancé broke up with you, you got laid off, a friend stabbed you in the back, a church failed you, your son got arrested again. You cried out to God in pain in those moments, and he didn't come through in the way you expected. It's easy, incredibly easy in those moments and for a long time after to wonder, is what I've been told from this book about God true? Is he really here? Is he really involved? Does he care? Or are those just platitudes? Or maybe you're here today as a new Christian. The fire for God is still white hot in your heart. Everything is new and thrilling. Your temptation, frankly, will be to think it's always going to be that way. For a few of us, our Christianity plays out that way, it seems, every day for the rest of life. But for the majority of us, that's not the way it works. There will come times of doubt and question and hardship. Our walk through this book of Esther has been designed, because it's the design of the book, to reshape for you how you think about God, regardless of which one of those camps you may fall in. There are times when God chooses to do miracles. There are times when 
the alcoholic gets saved and the desire for alcohol is just, boom, gone overnight. It's just gone. There are times when a spouse forgives infidelity because she wants to forgive the way Jesus forgave her. There are times that cancer simply disappears. There are times then a wayward child comes home repentant that money for the bills just shows up. Some of us have experienced those moments, right? Where it's clear and it's undeniable, God is here and God has worked. But there's other times when our perception is that God's asleep or he's off on a vacation or he's too busy to deal with our little problems because he's got really cataclysmic, world-size issues to deal with. If we're honest, when life is smooth, that doesn't bother us all that much. So when life is going the way we expect it, it doesn't seem to trouble us that God doesn't work always the way we expect Him to. But when things come apart at the seams, when the wheels fall off of life, then that's when the questions seem to come. Esther is in the Bible for those kinds of moments. It reminds us that God is there because God always works for His glory and the good of His people. That's what He's doing. That's why the book is here. If you follow the story of Esther on a purely human level, it's nothing more than a long series of coincidences. One after another, after another, after another. And we've said this each week, but God doesn't seem to show up in the book. He's not mentioned Nobody prays. Nobody reads scripture. There's no mention of him anywhere. And so if we follow the story on on merely the surface level, it seems like there's just coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. I made a list of just a few of them. If the king in the first chapter had not gotten sloppy drunk, he wouldn't have called for his wife to be paraded in front of the other drunken men. If Queen Vashti hadn't refused to come, she would not have had her crown removed. If the king wasn't a pervert, he never would have started the bachelor Persia. If there was no bachelor Persia, Esther would have never slept with the king. If she hadn't slept with him, she never would have become queen. If the queen, if the king later in the story hadn't been able to sleep, or rather, if he had been able to sleep, he never would have had the annals of his kingdom read to him, and so he wouldn't have learned that Mordecai had not been honored. And if that had not happened, then Mordecai, not Haman, would have died. If Esther had not become queen, she never would have had occasion to ask the king to spare the Jews from annihilation. If the Jews hadn't been spared genocide, Jesus wouldn't have come. If Jesus hadn't come, there would be no salvation, and you would be at home asleep right now. For the person without the mental category for a God in existence that we can't see physically with our eyes. So the person without that category, all of these things are just a long string of weird things that happen to happen. But God's people know them to be something called providence. The hand of God at work when we can't see the hand of God. God is the creator. He's king of the universe. He's in charge of literally everything that happens. Nothing ever occurs that's outside of his view. Even the smallest details of our lives are under the watchfulness of God. 
in such a way that God providentially directs the tiniest of events for the maximum good in the lives of those who love God. The story of Esther is meant to tell us that there are no coincidences. There's only providences. Dr. Haney ended last week's message with a reference to Romans chapter 8. I'd like us to look at it in a little bit fuller breadth. Here's what it says, chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Dr. Andy did a great job of drawing out what that good is. Verse 29 tells us, For those who he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called them, as he called, he justified them, who he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Whom shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who still is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Here's one of the great couple of verses in all of Scripture. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is great news. What's Paul saying? He's saying, Christians, there's nothing that happens in your life that has not first passed through the hands of a good, loving, gracious God who promises to use each and every one of those things for the good of making you more Christ-like, for the good of producing more maturity in you as you follow God. Sometimes it's easy to believe that. Other times, it's exceptionally difficult. One of the greatest things we can do for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ is come alongside one another in those times when it's not easy to believe that is truthful and to encourage each other to stay strong and to trust God and to be honest in the doubt. Esther is a great book to use to help each other in those times. That's what we've said as we've looked through this story. That's what we've been reminded of as we've considered this odd little book. Now today, what we need to do is finish out the story. Frankly, if you don't know how the story ends, the easiest thing to do is to just stop at the end of chapter 7. Just to pretend the last three chapters aren't there. Just to cut them out. But of course they are there, so that's not the best way to handle this. But up till now, here's what's happened. Haman is dead. The king had him killed. Esther came clean. 
it seems that in the process of interceding for her people, she has found faith and come to follow God. Mordecai is now the second most powerful man in the nation. So it's a Hollywood ending. God's people were supposed to be wiped out, but Esther has now come clean. God's been at work, even when you can't see him. Pretty cool story, right? But the book isn't over. There's more left. And if you know the rest of the story, here's, in essence, what we find. There's still a huge problem. Haman may be dead, but the edict that the king signed to have all the Jews killed still stands. It's still in force. So the enemy of the Jews may be dead and gone, but the problem that he incited still stands. So now what? Well, allow me to summarize for you what those three chapters tell us. Esther goes back to the king, risking her life a second time, and begs for the Jews to be spared. She essentially says to the king, don't follow through and kill all the Jews. And the king comes back with what is kind of odd. If you were reading it in the message version of the Bible, it says this essentially. Jeez, woman, I didn't have you killed for barging in on me. Instead, I killed Haman. And then I gave his place to Mordecai, along with all of Haman's possessions. I really don't care about the rest of the Jews, but you can do what you want. It's, it's brutal, heartless, selfish leadership. I hope you pray for those who are in power in our government. They have tremendous power. The temptation to rest in that power instead of a power greater than them is, is great. Pray for those who are over us, as the scriptures tell us. Because the edict to kill the Jews couldn't be revoked, Mordecai and Esther at this point essentially sought a new decree that would overturn the first one. So look at chapter 8, verse 11. And to cover all all this ground, we've just got to zoom in the story at particular moments, read scriptures, and then zoom back out and consider what they mean. Here's what it says. They issued a new edict, and here's what it says, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy and to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Great scripture to have your three or four-year-old memorize. All right, a little further down in the story, verse 15, this tells us what happened as that edict goes out. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a gold crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and its edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The reversal of the story couldn't be more dramatic. Couldn't be more dramatic. The Jews were marked for annihilation. There was a day set out where all of them were supposed to be slaughtered. 
But now they've been given the right to defend themselves when they're attacked. They did not have that right. They were all going to be killed. And now they're told by the king, and it's issued throughout the province, every province, you can defend yourself. The city of Susa was in confusion early in the story. Now we're seeing, we see them in joy and in harmony. People knew that the Jews were going to be killed because the Persian Empire called for their death, but now they're fearful of the Jews because they were given the right to bear arms and defend themselves. Esther kept her ethnicity and faith private, but now she boldly intercedes in public for her people. Mordecai was in agony and mourning, but now he's joyful as his people are spared and the enemy, Haman, is dead and the role was given over to them. It's really hard to summarize and to get the tension in the story as we've looked at it all of these weeks. But everything has been turned on its head. By writing a new decree and giving the Jews the right of self-defense, Esther and Mordecai probably hoped the story would be over. In other words, the first edict that went out to mark them all to die couldn't be overturned. But they're hoping that now if everyone knows the Jews can defend themselves, maybe they'll just simply cancel themselves out. Are you with me? But that's not actually how the story plays itself out. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Now the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemy of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ashurus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the people. History tells us that the Jews defended themselves against those who attacked them. And on the day that they were all supposed to die... They didn't. Thousands of people died at the hands of the Jews instead. God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis to create and preserve a people group through which all the nations of the earth would eventually be blessed is seen playing itself out here in the book of Esther. When they were all supposed to die, God preserved them. Esther proves it. Even when the people of God stray from him and they're living in disobedience, God still keeps his promises. That's good news because you and I are often and also unfaithful to follow God. We wander away, don't we? And God is faithful to preserve his people. Even when life is looking nothing like we expect it, even when heaven is silent, God keeps his promises. That's what these stories in Esther are meant to tell us. So, honestly, these are difficult passages to try and grasp for us, aren't they? When we think of God, the Jews, Christianity, we think of love, we think of grace, we think of peace, we don't think of lots of people getting killed. And today, in 2014, 
when we talk with people who aren't Christians about struggles they have with Christianity, one of the first things you're likely to hear is what? You likely hear about crusades. What else? What's occurring in South Sudan? What else? Hypocrisy seen in what appears to be these kinds of stories, right? So I'd love for us to not gloss over that, but to take a few minutes to speak to it. How do we as Christians today understand stories like this in the Old Testament? Stories where it's very clear that God's people acted in such a way that's very different than what we would understand to be the godly thing to do. I'd imagine none of us in the room today, if we were wrestling through writing the end of Esther, this is not probably the way we would have told the end of the story. At least it doesn't leave me with warm fuzzies. We imagine that a God of love means that all the people are converted and they live happily ever after. We imagine the story ending at the end of chapter 7. We imagine chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 not being there. The God of our conception is not a God that would say, okay, Jews, it's okay to defend yourself. You are welcome to kill those who are seeking to kill you. And yet that is literally what happened. Not only is it what happened, it's what the story is intending to tell us is the fulfillment of God's promise. God being faithful to what he said he was going to do. Now there's a ton of things we could talk about here. One of those is the massive cultural differences between us and them. And the fact that the Jews were living as occupied people who had no right or authority or power. And so them being given the right to defend themselves isn't so much you being given the right to shoot someone if they break into your house in the middle of the night, but a people group being told, you don't merely have to roll over and die. You can stand up for yourself and genocide doesn't have to be how the story plays itself out. That's actually what what happened here. This wasn't mainly vengeance for an evil that they thought might happen. It was self-defense of the people of God. But there are some troubling aspects to this story. Commentators vehemently disagree about this, and I'll just be candid and tell you that. But my reading of Esther leads me to believe that while the Jews acted mainly in self-defense, there are sprinkled in the story hints of things that seem less than ideal for what the people of God should do. So, for example, look at chapter 9, verse 5. They, the, the Jews, struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to all those who hated them. Or down at verse 12. The king 
said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadels the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done to the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What further is your request? And it shall be fulfilled. I would like Esther at this point to say, that is sufficient. God has been faithful. He has demonstrated his power. We're alive. We're not dead. Let there be peace. That would seem to me to be the godly thing for her to say at this point. But there's a problem. That's not what she says. Verse 13. Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. In other words, give us another day for some more killing. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So they're already dead, but that's not enough. Let's ram them on stakes and hoist them into the air. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. To this day, there is a a festival every year celebrated among the Jews called Purim. It was not long ago. Um, In fact, it was about a week before we started the book of Esther. There is um, a large synagogue in walking distance from my house. And in the feast or the festival of Purim, what happens is people get together. The girls dress up. They have a pageant. Does that seem a bit odd to anyone but me? If you know why they had the first pageant. Why you would want your daughter to dress up is troubling. Then they reenact the story, at least parts of it. There's alcohol involved, and they read the book of Esther. And every time when the name of Haman is read, they do something. Does anybody know what? They boo, they hiss, they beat on pots, they yell, they rattle. Every time his name comes up. This has been going on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Still happening right in our own city. Every year. This doesn't seem to me like brokenheartedness over the reality of sin and the terrible consequences it brings. It seems a lot more like the settling of scores. Now, The story of Esther is all through it, this commingling of good and evil. So why the story would end without it should not seem all that odd to us. The downfall of the proud and the exaltation of God's people, the demise of God's enemies and the blessings of God's people are themes throughout the Bible. So Haman's death was just. Self-defense against those who hated the Jews was just. At this point in salvation history, God's judgment against evildoers came through God's people. So they weren't disobeying God in what they did. Generations before Esther, Haman and Mordecai and Xerxes were ever born, the Amalekites attacked the Jews, and God said that they were all going to be wiped out. Esther shows us how that happened. 
They were doing what God told them to do. But really the question we're asking when we ask these questions isn't so much about back then. It's really more about right now, right? It's really more, are we called to the same course of action? Does the church defend itself by force? Do we as individual Christians? That's really what the story begs us to talk about. The answer clearly has to be no. On this side of the cross, when we look at the life of Jesus, when we look through the lens of his self-sacrifice on the cross, we're called to something much greater. We're called to a, a fuller, more rich understanding of God's work. Jesus calls us to forgive regardless of how many times we've been offended. He calls us to turn the other cheek. He calls us to never seek our own revenge, but to even love our enemies. To bless those who curse us, to do good to those who hate us, to pray for those who use us up and spit us out. So before you turn your nose up at the Jews for enjoying their victory more than they should, I would encourage you to seek your own heart, to search out what's going on in your own soul. Is there anyone who's harmed you that you're gently twiddling your thumbs longing for their demise? Is there someone who's inflicted a hurt on you that you're hoping somebody else will inflict a hurt on them? Is there someone who's spit in your face, metaphorically, of course, that you're praying God would send along some poor soul who would spit in their face? Do you daydream about settling the score? In the recesses of your soul, are you privately lurking about looking for the demise of those who hurt you? Brothers and sisters, God calls us to more. He calls us to better. You see, the, the Jews at this point in Esther's story had this much of the picture. We have this much. Romans 12 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So, It's not completely up to us. So the person that has offended me, I can't control their actions, but I can, with God's strength, control how I react to them. If possibly, live peaceably with all. Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, on this side of the cross, the gospel beckons us to forgive just as we've been forgiven. Even when people sin against us, we are able to forgive because the Father forgave us of even a greater sin. Christians, our Savior calls us to live as Jesus lived. And because He lives within us, 
we're literally able to never take our own revenge, but to extend love to those who harm us. Now, if, if we zoom back and look at this at the big historical 30,000-foot view perspective, all of this makes sense in light of the whole story of the Bible. In the book of Esther, God's people were given dramatic supernatural relief from their enemies. No question about that. Here's how the book ends. Look at chapter 10, verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Asherus. And he was great among all the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Peace. That's how the book ends. Peace. Peace. The full weight of the Persian Empire was supposed to fall on the Jews, but God's people supernaturally prevailed. They exist today. We exist as a church because the story played itself out this way. God gave them peace. Throughout the last several chapters, there's this recurring theme that comes up. It it uses this phrase. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. They had relief. Isn't that what you want? Rest, relief, peace. In Esther's day, the Jews found relief. They found rest. They found peace. But it didn't last. It never seems to last. They had rest under Joseph for a while in Genesis. They had rest under Moses for a while. They had it in, under Joshua. They had it under David. They had it under Solomon. They had it under Esther and Mordecai. But it never stuck. Never. The story is cyclical. Trouble, rest. Trouble, rest. Trouble, rest. Trouble, rest. Why? If you've been massively confused and lost up until this moment, then forget the rest and just hear this piece. Why did the rest not last? Why does the story of the Old Testament end without relief? The rest and relief found in the Old Testament was just a temporary shadow of the permanent thing that's given in Christ. If you listen to the Old Testament closely, you begin to hear people like Isaiah and Daniel prophesying that someday a perfect Messiah would come who would give a a better rest, a lasting rest, a more full rest. This rest would be an ultimate rest, a permanent release, a total, final, unending peace, a complete, all-encompassing state of well-being and joy in God. Friends, ultimate rest or relief from the greatest enemy is given in Christ. The greatest enemy the Jews faced wasn't Persia. It was sin. 
It's sin that separates us from ultimate joy in relationship with God. And Satan, referred to in Scripture as the enemy, rejoices over, encourages, juices up our sin. But in Christ, everything changes. Striving ends. Relief is given. Not in order that we could earn God's favor, but because we've already been given it. That, when we think of the story on the grand scale, helps us understand things Jesus said like this. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The book of Hebrews picks up this theme and it says, For we who have believed enter that rest. My dear friends, the rest given to Esther and Mordecai was great. It was miraculous. It was supernatural. But it didn't last. Today, you and I are offered a better rest. We're offered an eternal rest. We're offered a rest in Christ from everything that would separate us from Him. That's what we're all really looking for. So non-Christian in the room, do you want relief? Then run to Jesus. Cast your sin at His feet and ask Him to be Lord of your life. And you will find victory. Christian, have you turned from the rest already given to you back into the striving of trying to find that rest on your own? It's possible and actual, actually probable that you can be living in far less than the rest you've already been given in Christ. You can be striving for the thing you've already been given. Who would admit to looking for your keys while they're in your pocket? Searching for your hat while it's on your head? Christian, you and I are prone to do the same thing. We're prone to look for that which we've already been given in Christ. The book of Esther says to you and to me, we might struggle at times to see the hand of God, but He's here. And He's promising to always use everything for your good. So put down your self-effort and look to Him again. Trust and rest in Him. Let's pray.